Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. We're in Luke 16. We've gone through the parable of the unjust steward, and then what I call the law and the prophets, that little transition. And then we are now looking at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I think it's a familiar story. Begins in verse 19. Let me read through the end of chapter 16. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who would want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one of them go from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead." These are sometimes considered harsh words or tough. Let me kind of introduce another thought so that we understand what's happening in our world. Tonight is Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve, right? And maybe we need to understand a little bit of the origin and the evolution because it has become the second highest holiday in Satanism, May 1st being the highest. But it was in the fifth century that a man by the name of Augustine came up with a new and many strange doctrines. He is called the father of modern Catholicism. John Calvin took many of Augustine's ideas and he formed what is today Calvinism. But our Baptist forefathers, the Donatists, labeled him as a heretic. And we'll see why. Because he took our text and he began a teaching called purgatory. He began this idea that from this text that there was a place where some people that were unsaved, but they had been elected by God to salvation, they would go and be tormented and burned, and then eventually they could enter into heaven. This text makes it abundantly clear that's just not the case. We're going to see that. So this new doctrine of purgatory, it was supported by some of the apocryphal books 
That began, and later one of the popes established a church calendar. Because, you know, the Jews had a calendar. God gave the Jews a calendar. And so the pope wanted a calendar as well. And so then we have such things that came about as these Christian holy days, tomorrow being All Saints Day. That is the day that supposedly the pope has decreed. All those people that have been awaiting to get out of this purgatory, now they get to go into heaven. And of course, All Hallows' Eve is those demons are trying to keep them and hold them in place and keep them from going. None of that is biblical. <laughs> I want to say, none of that is from the Bible. Constantine began some of this, but all of these things, uh, holidays like All Souls' Day, Advent, even Christmas as we know it, Lent, Easter, and so on. You know, uh, let me just say this, but Easter, we celebrate the resurrection every week. It was that important that the New Testament churches met on the first day of the week always to remember the resurrection. Now, Satan would love that we'd only remember the resurrection for one day a year, but we do remember it one day a week. So the Lord's churches celebrate because the resurrection is so important. We are reminded every day of each week of the importance of the resurrection of Christ. We, why say all of this? Because Satan loves the religious trappings. He loves that one day a year we think about being the dead being raised or all of the religious things and these, these people that now maybe get to go into heaven. But our text says so much different. Note also that after death, Jesus, let, well, let me back up. Let me say it this. When Christ died, scripture says they went in and he takes captivity captive. And I believe that this place that we read of here in Luke 16 is no longer there because Christ took captivity captive and now they were able to enter into heaven. That's why the apostle Paul says, for me to die is gain. To be absent from the body, he also says, is to be present with the Lord. So that's why in our day and age, we don't have to worry about going to a place where there's a great gulf and it's a place of beautiful paradise opposite just that of those in torment. We now go into the very presence of God because the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to the mercy seat. That's why after the resurrection of Jesus, there were many seen that had been raised. Why? Because he took all of those. Abraham's not in this place anymore. I said all of that to say, I believe that this is a true story. Now, most of your commentators will tell you it's a parable. But whether it's a parable or not, it doesn't matter because the meaning is the same. The story tells the truth. No one in the Bible had more to say about hell than the Savior of sinners, our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the most vivid biblical descriptions about hell in all of the four Gospels, and they come from Jesus. So other New Testament writers, and by the way, all of the New Testament writers somewhere allude to the reality of hell, but the substance of what we really know comes from Jesus himself, from the public discourses. And sometimes there were private instructions to the 12, but our Lord had so much to save than the average person might think about the doctrine of hell. And a lot of what he taught about hell is shocking. 
He indicated, for example, hell is going to be full of religious people. According to the scripture, that multitudes of seemingly devout, giving people some self-styled miracle workers are going to be astonished when they're turned away at the throne of judgment because Jesus made the point emphatically in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Those turned away aren't just in cults or in false religions, but many of these people are maybe what we would think of as being orthodox, but they truly don't believe in what they profess. They truly did not ask the Lord for his salvation. So there's kind of their, their unbelief in that secret, hypocritical religion. Jesus, furthermore, really indicates that this world's religious activity is nothing more than the broad road, the highway leading to hell. Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. That's found in verse 13 of Matthew 7. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Well, let's think about Jesus now in our text. Jesus is versing and coming against the Pharisees. Because as we talked about initially in chapter 15, he's talking to sinners. And the Pharisees are deriding him. They're making fun. They're saying, he's eating and drinking with sinners. And then we looked at the parable of the unjust steward, the beginning of chapter 16, how Jesus began to speak to his disciples. But the Pharisees overheard. They were listening. And this is really because of their obvious contempt. The Pharisees are biblically oriented, religious leaders of the time, yet they really epitomize what Jesus is talking about. He said so publicly and repeatedly, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Our Lord's obvious contempt for the Pharisees' religion must have seemed like it sent major shockwaves through the religious community and all of the regions where Jesus was ministering. So as we've seen, the Pharisees were obsessively meticulous. Have you ever seen somebody who was just meticulous, but then if they obsessed over being meticulous, they wanted to fulfill all of the fine points of the Old Testament in the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws. They were the most respectable. They were seemingly upright. They were devoted holy men in all of the Roman Empire, there was nobody found like the Pharisees. Most of the Pharisees themselves were very confident that they deserved heaven. And after all, no one in history of Judaism had ever worked harder to enforce all of the statues, all of the ceremonies, all of the commands of Moses' law. They, were, they really believed that they'd made it. The Pharisees had even added some extra rules, some extra restrictions. They wanted to guard the ceremonial purity. They wanted all of that. So just as we saw last week that Jesus began to speak to their needs. You know, the Pharisees would get large boxes, and place them right here on their forehead, phylacteries, and sometimes on their, on their forearms. 
It's interesting because the rabbis will teach you there is a certain way to tie them. It has to be done a certain way. There have to be seven wrappings around the arm. So it has to be a long thong because seven was the number of God. And, 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 in, and each one of the phylacteries that would go, there was portions of scripture. So they had it down to minute laws that aren't found in the Old Testament. They said, oh, look at us. But Jesus never never salutes their efforts. He doesn't congratulate them on all of their achievements. He's not trying to find a common ground between his teaching and theirs. And every time Jesus addresses the issue of their religion, he bluntly makes it clear that their righteousness was not sufficient to merit heaven. Their religion was on a fast road to eternal condemnation. They were obsessed with what others could see in them. They wanted other people to act. They neglected the, the important issues, the weightier issues like pride, lust, greed, covetousness. All of those things were festering in their own hearts. And Jesus spoke out against their hypocrisy. He fully knew their hearts. And he said plainly, publicly, that the Pharisees were inwardly corrupt and self-condemned. And so when Jesus reached the end of this parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16. The Pharisees had overheard him because they had made an idol of money when Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon in verse 13 of chapter 16. Luke says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and derided him. We talked about that last week. Jesus really condemns them for their religious outgoing. He pointed out that the Pharisees had labored long. They wanted to look like they had really been single-minded, but nothing that they could do was any greater than, the scripture says, soiled rags, filthy rags, stained with bodily fluids. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64. It reflects God's contempt. That's why Jesus told them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What's highly esteemed among men is an abomination. Now let's think of the context of this story. At this point in Luke's narrative here in verse 16, he really summed up everything that he was telling them because we talked about it last week. One was that the old covenant was giving way to the new. The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. Everyone is pressing into it. The threats, the punishment of the law were all being answered with the promises of the gospel, the sacrifice of Christ, all of that. And there were sinners that were pressing in, wanting to know the freedom from the law. Why? Jesus' second point, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. The law's demands and the threats were relentless. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all, James tells us. The Pharisees had interpreted the law and designed it according to their own standards that were obtainable. And that's why, because they were, Jesus brings out one thing that they were practicing, and that was divorce, that they could divorce their wife for any reason at all. That's why he brings out whoever divorces wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. He is looking into these Pharisees and showing them. So the Pharisees, with all of their obsessions, had not even begun to grasp how inflexible the law was. 
And furthermore, the law governed not merely what people could see, but the law dealt with the secret thoughts of the heart as well. The Pharisees assumed that they were meriting everything that God would give them under the law, but that was a delusion. Said all of that because this story highlights the hopeless horrors of hell the infinite regret that's going to eternally haunt those that are well-meaning, self-righteous people whose wealth or religion, their earthly advantages have kind of insulated them from the reality of the need of divine God's beautiful grace. It's very disturbing and frightful of all of Jesus' stories. It confronts us with truths about eternity, the afterlife, and what we don't sometimes like to think or take seriously because in this day and age, people want to just make light of a devil's hell. In our Western society, people use the term hell as, as a swear word. They're making light of it, or they'll tell somebody to go to that place, or they'll use another word that is, if God in his damnation would send somebody. And so they make light of it. But that is not what Jesus is telling us here. The story deals with some extreme opposites. Think about it. We have torment and we have comfort. We have death and life. We have hell and heaven. And the characters were extremely opposite. A very wealthy man and a beggar who lived in extreme poverty. So their fortunes are reversed in the afterlife, aren't they? It's just the opposite. Now consider, because the focus is on the misery of the man in hell, this is a kind of disturbing story and such. But Jesus, in his loving and gracious purpose, he's telling it to the Pharisees. He's warning them not to follow their own traditions. Don't follow your instincts, your religious convictions. He's urging them to repent. Why? I love in 2 Corinthians, it says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Jesus was not telling the story for somebody's amusement. This is a very serious word of warning, precisely the kind of testimony the rich man in the story wants. He's begging to be delivered to his five brothers. The story slams you with a feeling of shock and dismay. That's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants us to be shocked with it. The severity of the matter, the urgency of the point, that's what the, our Lord is making. It's hard-edged teaching, and it's done on purpose. And Jesus is not concerned with the academics, the nuances. The, he's not being diplomatic being straightforward. He's telling them exactly what needs to be done. Those who are not put off by the shrillness of the story, the unpleasantness of the subject matter, we need to think about the higher purpose of what Jesus is talking about here. Truth is not judged by how it makes people feel. Truth is truth. And of course, hell has always stirred some negative passions. That was true in Jesus' day. Today, unfortunately, it's almost taboo. In many evangelical circles, nobody wants to preach on hell. Hell's an embarrassment to Christianity, some might think. They want the biblical message to go and make you feel, okay, you come away from church and man, I feel good. I, I feel all right. Sometimes the teaching of hell is an irritant that when you want to just go and feel good about yourself and you just want to walk away and say, man, our Lord's good. Well, our Lord is good. And I hope that you'll see that. 
It's an offense to those who care very little about righteousness or not fearing God, but that want to maintain a pretense to piety. They want to look like it, kind of like the Pharisees. In all of those things, we see there's sometimes even Bible commentators that talk about the ideal uh, idea of hell as being cruel or unfair. They do not conceive or look at our loving God that's doing this in order that people will not go there. Let's think about this. Let's look again. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Here's the man that is primarily being looked at. This story of the rich man, Lazarus, it's a description of what hell entails. But this man, he has just gotten everything, hasn't he? He's just got so much. Some would say, well, this is a parable and it's not really an actual event. And as I said before, it doesn't matter because the story is one purpose. It's to warn the hearers that hell will be full of people who never expected to be there. Let me just tell you, this man did not expect to be in hell. Everything was going his way. He was rich, clothed in purple. That's the, you know, what kings would wear. That's what the royalty would wear. And he fared sumptuously every day. He was feasting every day. This man has it made. This is the one who thinks that I've just got it. He's over the top wealthy. He's lavishly wealthy. That's the idea of it. His life was a perpetual feast of pleasures. And then he had such great wealth that he would have been, of course, highly influential. He was precisely the kind of person that the average Israelite would have, under the teachings of the Pharisees, they would have believed he's blessed by God. He's assured of heaven. Look at everything that God has given him. By the way, hell is a real place. It's described as the outer darkness, the place of total isolation and alienation when blackness and darkness forever. The Apostle Paul referred to hell as an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. It is real. Satan wants to give you the idea, well, it's not so bad that all of the friends are going to be down there and you're all going to have everything. You know, what a great party it's going to be. That's not what the Lord is showing us here. He's pulled back the curtain so that we could see it, that we could understand it. And this man is an Israelite because he cries out and he says, Father Abraham. He's looking to Abraham as his father. He's recognizing and he's, he's not a pagan. He says, Father Abraham. Abraham replies to him, son. So he must have therefore had some knowledge about the adoption, the glory, the, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services to God, the promises. He must have had some understanding about all of those. Most of those listening to Jesus would have concluded that this man was blessed of God. God has favored him. As for the poor man, Lazarus, he's beyond destitute. He's paralyzed. He's unable to move. He's unable to care for himself. Notice what it said in verse 16. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. That term, laid at his gate, is a passive term. Somebody had to pick him up and lay him at the gate of the rich man. They put him there. He couldn't do it. Why? Because he's probably paralyzed. You know, paralyzed people not being able to move, they get bed sores. I don't know if you've ever seen bed sores. They can become like ulcers in the skin. That's why, you know, even somebody who's in a coma, the nursing staff has to go and turn them every so often. 
so that they don't get those bed sores. It's horrible. He was laid at the rich man's gate. Somebody had discarded him, put him at the rich man's mansion, and assumed that maybe somehow he's going to receive some kind of charity from the rich man because he lives in such luxury. He's clothed in purple robes like royalty, full of sores. He's emancipated. Can you just picture in your mind's eye? He would have been repulsive to those that were passing by, not able to clean himself, not able to care for himself because he doesn't receive help anywhere. He had to endure being licked by filthy street mongols. These are not pets that are so cute at home. These are filthy mongrels that are running the street, and he can't do anything about it. It's like he were already dead, and he longed for the crumb of, from the dirty bread the dogs would have eaten from under the rich man's table. That's what it says, desiring to be fed, verse 21, with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. There's the crossing over. There's the change. There's the contrast. You see it? He is carried in this great reversal of some so much suffering in such a horrible place that now he is standing before Abraham. That carries the idea of, it signifies, Abraham's bosom signifies that he's right there laying in the prominent place the place of honor, the place of that position of, that meant that everything would be focused upon him because he was next to Abraham, that father Abraham. In uh, Luke 13, 29, and these are in your notes, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. This is a place of honor, placed next to Abraham, where he would have had his head right next to Abraham's breast. Remember how John always wanted to be so close to our Savior? He always wanted to be so close to Jesus that he was leaning upon him, leaning upon his breast. In other words, the beggar who longed for a breadcrumb, he seemed so loathsome to these refined Pharisees who were dressed well. They had the long phylacteries. And by the way, the phylacteries, when the law said you should have a little tassel, they made these huge long tassels. So everyone would see, oh, look how, how religious I am. Look how great I am. Jesus is speaking directly to their need. He's speaking directly to who they are. The Pharisees, that they would have wanted to emulate this rich man who had enjoyed every earthly advantage, goes to hell, where he's humiliated, he's abandoned, he's without hope, and he's reduced to begging now for a drop of water. Lazarus had been hoping and begging for a crust of bread, and now the rich man is begging for a drop of water. Irony at every point, unexpected twist. Lazarus is named to this story because it marks him with honor. His name is from the form of Eliezer. It means whom the Lord has helped, and it's a name that evokes the idea of giving divine favor. And by naming him, Jesus graciously lifts him out of the disgrace and being anonymous like the typical beggars of that time, God has helped him. God has helped him. The rich man, by contrast, he isn't given a name. We don't know the rich man's name. He's stripped of all of the prominence that he had, including his name, the poor beggar whose desperate need the rich man once even failed to notice. 
had been given all of the privileges of eternal blessings. But look at the rich man's plea and Abraham's reply. Why is this rich man in hell? After all, there's no sin. We don't see that he is charged with doing anything, do we? He hasn't sinned anything. He's not a horrible person. He was apparently a religious man. Jesus doesn't charge him with any notorious sin or gross sin. In fact, the story doesn't even mention any specific evil deed that he's committed. He's a typical leading citizen in that society. It's clear he's selfish. It's clear he's uncaring. He's oblivious to the needs of his neighbor because he did nothing to help poor Lazarus. He did nothing that right there. But we don't see him throwing Lazarus off his property. He doesn't kick him off. He just does nothing. He's not abusing him. But Jesus purposely doesn't paint the rich man as an uncommonly cruel man or uh, some kind of a heinous evildoer. We often think of Charles Manson as, oh, or Adolf Hitler. They belong in hell. They were evil. This man's not an evil, notorious in that sense. He's just concerned about himself. If hell were only for the monsters, but that's not the point. If it were only for them, Jesus wants this known by all of these religious people. Notice that the rich man, when he finds himself in hell, he doesn't ask for release. He's not saying, wait a minute, I didn't do this. I, there's, a, there's a mistake. I, I want to be recompensed. I want to be reconsidered. Why am I here? All pretense is stripped away. There is no pretense. The full weight of his own guilt, he knows. He knows he deserves to be in hell, and all he asks for is the smallest hint of relief. He's never going to get that. There's no hope for a moment's pause in the grinding, eternal, bitter accusations of his own guilty conscience. The only concern he has left are now for his brothers, because he knows they are exactly like him. They're respectable. They're complacent. Comfortably enough, they're, they're probably also pillars of society, doing whatever they want, going through the motions for enough religious activity to maintain kind of a, a good reputation, an honorable reputation, but they are headed directly for hell. And so he says, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, this is verse 24, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Those who would want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. Now we might think, wow, now he cares. Now he cares. He's pleading on the basis of his Jewish heritage. He was one of God's covenant people. He was a descendant of Abraham. That ought to be worth something. That ought to get something. But many of the Pharisees and the disciples assumed that because they had that genealogical lineage, because they were of the line of Abraham, that God's going to give them some kind of favor. Perhaps maybe being a son of Abraham would get him a drop of water. Maybe that ought to be worth something. Many of the Pharisees, they also determined the same. This man knows from experience that his connections to Abraham had no, 
was, that wasn't going to get anyone to heaven. It had no hope. Perhaps his relationship to Abraham get him this drop of water or can send someone back to help his brothers. The request that he makes suggests that the five brothers would have also known of the beggar, that they also knew of this man who used to lie in filth and pain at the brother's gate. They must have known that Lazarus had died. Otherwise, a message from Lazarus wouldn't have carried much weight. But notice that even in hell, the rich man saw Lazarus as beneath him. Nobody could be given orders and sent where he was. But now he is wanting to send Lazarus because after all, Lazarus was just, he's just a beggar. Send Lazarus. Have him go do this. Have him dip the tip of his finger and cool my tongue. Have Lazarus go back and tell my brothers. But hell is punitive. It is not remedial. You see, in our, in our corrections in California and across our world, it's supposed to be, or across our nation, we're supposed to be a real rehabilitating. But really, it becomes more about punishing. And that's what hell is. Hell is punitive. It's not remedial. People in hell don't get better. The scripture is emphatic. It says, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. Revelation 22:11. Hell fixes the destiny and the character of that lost sinner, that reprobate forever. And here the rich man can still only view Lazarus as someone that he can pass commands to. His priorities and concerns are still narrow. He's still only concerned about me and mine. Like anyone who was steeped in the Pharisaical religion, his only concern was for those people in his immediate family. Couldn't see beyond. It's normal, of course, to care for one's own family and siblings and loved ones. But when we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, what are we taught? We're taught to love those from the second great commandment, that our love is much broader. Our love is to be those that we come in contact with. So why order Lazarus back from heaven for a private warning for his five brothers? And Abraham's response is firm. He tells them exactly. Abraham, this is verse 29. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Now, remember last week we talked about the law and the prophets. That was just up a little bit earlier. Now he's saying Moses and the prophets is still saying this is the Old Testament. The 39 books that we have in the Old Testament. He's saying they're called Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The word of God is sufficient. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is going to make the spiritually dead, the self-centered, self-willed, hypocritical, religious sinner. It's in the power of the word of God that changes lives. That's what Abraham is saying. He's saying the word of God is sufficient. You don't need a miracle. You don't need somebody coming back from the dead. You need the word of God to work in their lives. The redeemed have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? By the word of God. That's right. The rich man in hell was in hell forever, not because he lacked the information, but because he ignored the message. He had received the word of God, and the only way his brothers would ever escape this hell was by listening to the message and hearing it. So the rich man's request was an echo of what Jesus heard all the time because the Pharisees were asking him for signs. Lord, show us a sign. Jesus had just, in one of the gospel accounts, he had just healed a demonic 
he had done all kinds of miracles and healings. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we would see a sign from you. Jesus' everyday miracle weren't enough for them. They wanted a heavenly cosmic sign of such proportion. Jesus' reply was, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, I'll give you a sign, the sign of all signs, a resurrection. Would that even be enough to convince the Pharisees? Abraham's answer to that question in this story was, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That embodies really the main point of this teaching. It's not merely a warning about what hell is like, but it's a lesson about how the Word of God is sufficient for everything that we need. It's a plea for us to hear the Word and to take the Word. It's a need for us to take it to those that we take the Bible seriously, and we're taking it to a lost world that needs it. The one rise from the dead. A few months later, just four months later, after this parable is given, Jesus goes to a little town of Bethany and another man by the name of Lazarus. And there Lazarus has been laying in the tomb for four days and Jesus just simply speaks the word. And what does he say? Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. Did the Pharisees believe that? Did the Pharisees believe that resurrection? No. As a matter of fact, they denied it. They plotted how to kill Jesus. The chief priest, it says, and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs, and if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say of his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for that nation, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted how to put him to death. Amazing. In fact, we're told later in the chapter, the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. So instead of hearing the message of Jesus, they resolved to kill the messenger. <laughs> they did not want to hear this message that the rich man was in hell. He, when they would give him greater signs, they only became more determined to destroy him. Miracles have no special power to convince people who reject the message of Scripture. The message itself is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. What was the Pharisees' reaction when Jesus rose from the dead? Of his own power. Well, Matthew 28, 11 says, Some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. Were they finally convinced by this? <laughs> was that enough? Not at all. When they had assembled, the elders consulted together, and they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying to them, Tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. They conspired with the Roman guards to cover up and deny the resurrection. 
No miracle of any magnitude will convince someone who hears and understands the message of Scripture but rejects it anyway. That's what he's telling these Pharisees. You've heard the word and you've rejected it. Only the word of God and the working of God's Holy Spirit can open blind eyes, melt hardened hearts to receive the word of God. The truth is that God's word is that only message that has the power to save. And if you reject the word of God, but believe in some miracle or religious experience, or well, I've had this dream or that dream, or I've seen this or I've seen that, watch out. It's the power of the word of God that does all of these things. Your faith is not a saving faith if you're, or you're just saying, well, I had this great religious experience. You know, Augustine said that some little girl angel came and showed him the word of God. And therefore he said, I'm, I'm a Christian. And he came up with all these strange doctrines of purgatory and only certain elect and certain lost and only this one that that came up with all kinds of crazy. Beware. Beware that it's the word of God, that when you heard the word of God and you were convinced of your sin, you were convinced of your need for a savior. And that's why Abraham tells this rich man in hell, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. We are proclaiming the resurrection today. We're proclaiming the hope that we have. And those who doubt the word of God are going to be judged by the very truth that they reject. John 12, 46 through 48, Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world, and whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. But if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judged him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We have this great hope. I think you understand exactly what the scripture is saying. Here's this rich man who just believed that, well, I'm okay. I've been a good citizen. I've done all of the things on the outside, and yet he opens his eyes and is in torment. How about us? Are you secure in your knowledge that Jesus Christ died for you? That you can have eternal life because he died while we were yet sinners. The Pharisees, did; they didn't want to hear that. They thought they were righteous. They thought they had done all of the great things. One day we're going to meet this Lazarus. <laughs> One day we're going to meet that. And I want you to know that Jesus talked and uh, showed us what hell is to push us that know Christ into a lost and dying world to make us know that people really die and really go to a devil's hell and they need the hope of the Word of God they need to know that only Jesus Christ has life that only in him and it ought to encourage us that whenever we come across somebody that we tell them of the hope through the Word of God, that we tell them of the grace of Christ. One of the reasons that Jesus spoke so much on hell is because he is the Savior of the world. He does not want anyone to go there. He died so that you don't have to go there. He died so that you could have life. He died so that we might be emissaries and his servants and carrying forth the precious words of life to a world that is hell bound. How about you? 
Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you have been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions of a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website or you can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Tombstone said he is risen just as he said. Quickly now go tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is no longer dead.